Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, since the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover many of the same events in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, they are called the Synoptic Gospels. So if you ever hear that term, that's what's meant. The Greek word that's, or the Greek word that's translated as synoptic means seeing or viewing together. So since they are viewing, in fact, if you follow most of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, once it gets into the earthly ministry of Jesus, for the most part, they will cover many of the very same events. Now, each writer may have their own different focus, and they will focus on specific details, and some will give details that the other omits, but generally, they are calling attention to the same events in the public life and ministry of Jesus, uh, even as they bring their own differences to those situations. Now, the gospel of, of Mark stands out because, one, it's the first of the gospels. It's the oldest of all of the gospel books, but it's also the briefest of all of the gospels. Uh, Mark's, uh, not only is it, Mark's gospel is not only brief, but it stands out for two other particular reasons. One, it stands out for its style. The style of its writing is more, it focuses more on the work of Jesus rather than the words of Jesus. So for this reason, the style of his writing does not contain many of the parables. In fact, it has the fewest of the parables of Jesus and very few discourses from him. The focus of John's or of Mark's gospel and the style in which he writes is to give us an overview of the work of Jesus. But also it stands out for its tone. The tone of Mark's gospel is, is some would call, uh, abrupt. Uh, some would say that it is terse. It is somewhat aggressive in its language, and it's notable for, as one commentator says, for all of its verbs. And the reason it's, it, it is filled with verbs is because, again, it's a book of action. And Mark's purpose in writing his gospel is to tell us who Jesus is but also to focus on the work of Christ. I remember as a student, we were told that Mark focuses on Jesus the man. And, and that's true, but it doesn't just focus on him as, as the man, and we'll see this in a moment. But really the emphasis of Mark's gospel is to demonstrate that in the life and work of Jesus is the gospel itself. So John, uh, or Mark, stands out with John for another reason. Both John and Mark omit what we call the nativity passages of Jesus. 
In other words, those references uh, or those, those records of genealogy and the recording of events that took place around the birth of Jesus. They, they don't capture any of that. Neither, In fact, in, in both Mark and John's gospel, when they introduce Jesus, he's a full-grown man. So therefore, it's in these particular Gospels that we do not get any story of shepherds watching their flock by night. There is no mention of the wise men coming from the east. There is no reference to an inn that's too crowded to receive a pregnant woman. There is no mention of a manger. There is no angel singing in the field. When you get to Jesus in both the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John, he's a full-grown man. Not even mention of him at 12 years old in the temple, because, you know, the other two Gospel writers, they have the birth of Jesus, and according to how you would measure it, at the earliest you have, or the, the earliest past his birth, is possibly five years old when his family had to flee into Egypt because of the edict that had been given by Herod. And, but he doesn't show up on the scene again until he's 12. And others and many have written about the missing years of Jesus from the ages of 12 to 30, which is a gap of roughly 18 years. John Prine even wrote an album, The Missing Years. And writers across the ages have, have, spanned, have, have speculated into what Jesus was doing in those missing years. And it's perhaps for this reason that you have a greater appreciation for Mark and for John because they give us grown man Jesus. And that's where they begin, grown man Jesus. What I want to do this morning as we look at, at these opening verses in John's gospel, uh, because both in John and, or John, I said John, Mark, in Mark's gospel, but, but both in John and Mark's gospel, Jesus shows up on the scene just prior to his baptism. What I want to do is use uh, thoughts and words that we see expressed here in Mark's gospel that should help us as we head into, or are already in, what we would call the Advent season. Now, let me just mention this, because it's always worth repeating and returning to. That when we head into this season, there are three platforms by which we can understand this season. Uh, the season of Christmas. I call one the cultural platform. And by cultural, I mean, in fact, it could be cultural slash clan. Cultural celebration of Christmas is all of those customs and traditions that are germane to families, people groups, and regions. The hanging of, of Christmas or of, of Christmas lights, it's a cultural thing. Every neighborhood. In, and it's, it's really in certain parts of the world, but, but almost every neighborhood in America has that neighborhood or that street where they have the best Christmas lights. Uh, so we, it's a cultural thing. It's not, it's not necessarily bad. It's not wrong in and of itself, but it's a celebration of Christmas according to either the culture in which we live or the clan in which we are born. And by clan, I mean family, our family traditions. 
Most people have certain rituals that they go through during the Christmas season, whether it's in your immediate home or with your extended family. So there is the cultural slash clan celebration of Christmas. And that's okay. So whatever you do, whether you exchange gifts or don't exchange gifts, whether you have a ceremony or a service on Christmas Eve night with the family or Christmas morning, whatever you do, that's fine, and we should preserve that. But then there's also the commercial element. And commercial element of Christmas or the commercial uh, portrayal of Christmas is, well, just turn on your television and see all the stuff that you, that you need that you didn't know you need. Look at all the things, the different ways. That if you really want to say you love somebody, give them a Lexus, right? <laughs> I love those commercials. Celebrate your gift to yourself, and that's okay, and, and there is a commercial element to it. So, so here's what we, we, we end up being Scrooge when we turn away from our, our cultural and clannish traditions, and then we also turn away from the commercial. Ah, oh, I'm just not going to. They commercialize in Christmas, and they are, and they do it for all of the reasons that you pour on them. Yes, there is a commercial element of Christmas. Christmas trees... Christmas decorations, Christmas gifts, Christmas cards, all of that is a commercial thing. And you know what? Even on the commercial side of it, there are certain parts of certain parts, parts of the country where you just love it. There's nothing like being in downtown Chicago during the Christmas season and see all of the commercial celebration and say, oh wow, that's good. You know, you see people being nice to each other. You know, really, you, you, some, and it's almost like, oh, yeah, we got to because this is the season. And so the commercial aspect of it, it, it permeates all parts of, uh, of, of the culture that, that we see it on television, we see it in, in, in our news feeds, all of these things that tell us that Christmas, and, and you'll hear this, Christmas is for kids. Why? Because the parents have to buy. So with the, now here's a, an interesting combination of the cultural and the commercial. Where does Santa Claus fit into all of this? He's both. He's both. Now I don't know if you grew up believing in Santa Claus or teaching your children in Santa Claus, but understand it's it. There's a place for that, and it's okay. Hell is not for people who believe in Santa Claus. That's not what it's for. You can believe in Santa Claus if you want. I mean, that's, that's, it's not the first fantasy that we've been given that served a particular purpose. And so there is a commercial element to it, and Santa Claus captures both the cultural as well as the commercial. But then there's a Christian celebration. And the Christian celebration, what we are celebrating is very clear. We're not celebrating peace on earth in the sense that men stop going to war with each, each other. We're not celebrating people being nice to one another. What we celebrate in the Christian celebration of Christmas is the birth of Jesus. Now understand that in celebrating the birth of Jesus, it has nothing to do with Christmas decorations. 
It has nothing to do with wish lists, has nothing to do with all of the commercial things. And by the way, Christmas, if you understand it from a Christian perspective, has nothing to do with your clannish or cultural traditions. In other words, you can have all of those things or remove all of those things. But if what is not at the kernel and core of our celebration is the birth of Jesus, then we can change all of those things and put them on the calendar for any other time of the year or extract them and we're not made the better or the worse. There is a, a, a cultural celebration of Christmas and I pray that all of you celebrate however your clan and culture celebrates. Enjoy the season. Enjoy it. Don't, don't, be, don't be a killjoy. When you go to your, your unbelieving family member's house and you see a tree and start telling them that it's not about a tree, shut up. Just shut up. Don't be a killjoy. When you go to a family member's house and you see pictures of Santa Claus, don't tell them you know Santa Claus doesn't exist. Shut up. Let it slide. Let it slide. Don't be upset because you see all the commercials and don't be one of those Christians that say, oh, they're just pushing it back. No sooner than, than Halloween is over, they're celebrating Christmas. No, they're not celebrating Christmas. They're celebrating a commercial idea. And what is it that we can, where can we go when we're not being sold something commercially? And by the way, Christmas does not begin and end with Merry Christmas. So don't think that anybody's trying to rain on your parade when a Christian says, Happy Holidays. By the way, there are four holidays celebrated in there. Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve, and New Year's. So when a Christian says, happy holidays, don't think, oh, well, you're becoming worldly. No, let's fight another battle. Let's fight another battle. And understand this, that the commercial is the commercial because we live in a capitalist society and that's okay. And understand that the culture is the culture. So we don't, we don't start trying to find Bible verses that say Christmas trees are demonic. Because nobody is worshiping the tree. But let's be clear. That when we celebrate Christmas as Christians, what we're celebrating is the birth of Jesus. We will do it with family members and friends who have no idea of what we're celebrating, but we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. What we're celebrating, we use our culture and, and our family activities, and, and we enjoy those for what they are. We understand that we are, big, we are part of a bigger community, and we understand all of that, but let us not forget what we're celebrating. And with that in mind, what I want to do is look at four things from these verses that tell us what the birth of Jesus is all about and what we're celebrating when we celebrate the birth of Jesus in the season 
of Christmas. The first thing is this. The birth of Jesus is a gospel event. The birth of Jesus is a gospel event. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting because you say, well, he's already grown man. You've already said that. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But just look at that statement. What, what, what Christmas is all about, is a, it's, it's really is about the gospel. Now, here's why this is important. When we, when we say gospel, I'm not just talking about the facts of the gospel, which, it, which we are. The facts of the gospel are, is that, that, that God sent his son to live for our righteousness, to die for our sins, to be raised for our justification, who was ascended to the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Those are the facts of the gospel. But here's the part of it that we don't want to lose in this season. Because oftentimes we say, well, the spirit of the season is giving. No, it isn't. If, Christmas, if the birth of Jesus is a gospel event, then the spirit of the season is receiving. Because in the gospel, the only one who is at work is the one who's giving the gift. And therefore, it is the beginning of the gospel. And it's, it's interesting that Mark begins here because it's not that Jesus, what Jesus did up until this point is not important. It is important. Every moment of his existence as a human being is important. But what Mark says, here's what really puts it on the map. Here is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And it's at this point that he begins with his public baptism. And with his baptism, the father publicly affirms Jesus, not just the time that is to come, but he affirms his life. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you know what that includes? That includes his teenage years. That includes his pre-adolescence. It includes the terrible twos and kind of terrible threes. It includes all of that toddler phase that this is my beloved son from in whom I am well pleased. And what is the father well pleased in in his beloved son? Every moment that he has drawn breath. The birth of Jesus is a gospel event because in the birth of Jesus, it is only God at work. There is nothing that we are doing and could have done to deserve God sending his son. And there's nothing that we have done or that we could have done that would coerce the son to take on flesh in our place. The birth of Jesus is, first of all, a gospel event. And by gospel, we don't just mean the content of the gospel, but it is a gospel event because God is the sole power at work in that event. Here's the second thing we see. The birth of Jesus is a promised event. 
Notice what Mark says. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, here's the beauty of this. He mentions Isaiah the prophet, and he's really conflating three particular passages. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, Exodus chapter 23, and more particularly, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And so what, in, and in from all of these places, from Moses to Malachi to Isaiah, here's the point, that what God gives in the gift of Jesus, he's promised a long time ago. Jesus doesn't just show up fortuitously. That, that the birth of Jesus, I love the way Paul expresses it in Galatians where he says that in the fullness of time, which means that the, the time in which Jesus was born was designated by God the Father. This is a promised and a planned event. Jesus doesn't show up just because I, I was, in fact, I was in the barbershop the other day and, and, um, and, and uh, one of the brothers pointed out it was right after shooting on 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 uh, the, one of the military bases and they're talking about the shooting and said man why is all this going on and someone said yeah because Jesus is on his way and I just didn't say anything <laughs> we look at the wrong things to determine what time it is you see, brothers and sisters, it's not, oh, yep, the Bible says it's going to get, yeah, but really, come on, let's, let's, let's not do that. <laughs> let's not try to read the newspapers and determine what God is doing. Here's what God has done. When Jesus was born, I can imagine somebody saying, yep, it's about time, yep, yep, look at what's going on. Here's what happened. God in Genesis 3.15 looked at his sinful image bearers and he made a promise. He promised that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He promised that. And then so, and, and then through that, he says that the enemy would be crushed because the seed of the woman would crush his head. And then all of a sudden, Adam lives these, what, seven, eight hundred years? And, and look, by the way, you notice that the promise is made in Genesis 3.15 and in Genesis 4 verse 1, Eve has a child and it's a male child. And the, 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 the Hebrew is a little vague there because she says, behold, I have begotten the man from the Lord. Meaning that she thought she had given birth to the promise from verse 15 of chapter 3. But she could not have been further from the truth. She didn't give birth to the Savior. She gave birth to the first murderer. And so you say, where? Where then? How does God keep his word? Remember Abraham. Abraham took his son because the Lord told him to take your son and, and offer him up as a sacrifice. The son that you love. He got ready to go, and the writer of Hebrews says that by faith, Abraham offered up his son. But as he was about to really bring down the knife on his son, the Lord says, and remember the words, by the way, of Isaac. He says, he, he looks around, because he's a young man, he's not a boy. He's a young man. And he looks around, and he sees, he says, Father, I see the wood. I see all of the trappings of sacrifice. Now, here's my question. Where's the lamb? 
And as Abraham is sharpening his knife, he says, well, the Lord will provide. And Isaac willingly stayed on the altar, laid on the altar, ready to give his life. And God tells Abraham through, through an angel to stay your hand. James Boyce had a great message where he takes that up. He says, Isaac asked the question, where is the lamb? And, and, and then he goes on to trace the pages of Old Testament history. And he says, nope, the, the, the lamb, that's, that's not the lamb. The Passover is not the lamb. And lo and behold, he doesn't show up until John is baptizing by the river Jordan. This is a promised event. Here's what, what I mean by promise. God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 and he re-articulated that promise through all of the prophets. So you notice that you have these three phases of revelation that's represented in what Mark says here when he ascribes this to John. You have, or when he ascribes this to, to, to Isaiah, you have God's word to Moses, Exodus 23. You have God's word to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, before the overthrow of the southern tribes. And then you have the word of God to Malachi after the Babylonian exile. And here's what he says. I, I'm going to send a messenger. The birth of Jesus is a promised event. God promises. We've been looking at messianic prophecies in our Wednesday night study. God promised to send the branch. God promised to bring up a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the birth of Jesus is a matter of God keeping his promise. Begun in Genesis 3.15 and the rest of scriptures are progressively moving towards the fulfillment of that promise. Christmas or the birth of Jesus is a gospel event because God is the only one at work. But it's a promised event because God promised and prophesied it as early as Genesis 3.15. But we see also thirdly that the birth of Jesus is a phenomenal and miraculous event. The birth of Jesus is a phenomenal and a miraculous event. Notice the way that, that Mark describes Jesus and he does it the same way that John does, but he uses less words. John in his prologue in John chapter 1 goes on to tell us about the word that created the heavens and the earth and there was nothing made that was not made by him. And, and then it reaches this climactic point and here's all of the, the nativity that John gives us and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and so here's what John makes clear in his prologue that the word is person and not a thing the word is eternal the word is divine the word is source of all things that are created and then that word became flesh there's your nativity well, here's the way Mark expresses it. In verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he gives us this simple statement, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now understand, he's moving forward. And he's telling us that the one who is to be baptized... 
the one who is going and facing Satan in the wilderness. Who is it? It's the Son of God. Here is the miracle. Here is the phenomenon of Christmas. That the eternal Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps, the God who, as, as, as it says in, in, in Psalms 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Here is the miracle of Christmas, that the eternal God condescended and became flesh. That's the miracle of Christmas. Brothers and sisters, when long-lost loved ones come out of the woodworks during Christmas, it's nice, but it ain't, it ain't a miracle. When long-standing feuds are ended and they end during Christmas, it's nice, but it's not a miracle. Brothers and sisters, the miracle of this season is that the God who is beyond human passion, in other words, he's not like us, condescends and limits himself in human flesh. We always celebrate the ones who go from rags to riches. And we look with shame at those who go from riches to rags. They become fodder for late night television, whatever happened to and here's the miracle of the season. That when what we're celebrating in the birth of Jesus is the holy God who created the world ex nihilo out of nothing, who needs no one. As Paul says, he is the eternally blessed God. He became flesh and contained his glory. And the essence wrapped the essence of his deity in flesh. Needed nothing from the angels. Needed nothing from anything that he's created. But allowed himself to need his mother's breast. That's the miracle of Christmas. It's a miraculous event. That he would condescend and take on flesh for us. And then not only take on flesh, but that in that flesh he would suffer. Can you imagine how many of us would, we look at people that we've been around and say, well, that was a mistake. Right? And you grow out of that relationship. Can you imagine being around knuckleheads even when you know all things? You already knew they were knuckleheads when you started hanging out with them. And you know that when you leave, they'll still do knucklehead things. How many of us would have invited Judas into our company knowing everything to know about Judas? How many of us would endure Peter knowing everything that we know about Peter? The miracle of this season and the birth of Jesus is that the eternal, all-knowing God wrapped himself in human flesh and endured the indignity of people questioning him. All he did was try to speak truth, and then what did some people say? Oh, I know where he's from. 
cast out demons. When people say, oh, he's only doing it by tricks and, and using the devil. Do you think he knew that before he came? There are some places you say, well, if I had known this before, I probably wouldn't have made that choice. Jesus is the all-knowing God. And he knew what he was getting into when he put on human flesh. And yet he put on human flesh. The birth of Jesus is a gospel event because only God is the one at work in it. And the birth of Jesus is, it, it is a promised event because it doesn't just sneak up, us, or sneak up on us. God has planned this thing out and sent Jesus at the right time. And so therefore when he begins, it's the promise. It's remember, God has already said he's coming and I will send one as a voice crying in the wilderness to let you know when he's arrived. But the birth of Jesus is a miraculous event. Because the birth of Jesus is really the Son of God taking on human flesh. And all of the limitations of human flesh, everything except sin. And here is the irony of ironies. We are outraged when bad things happen to what we declare as good people. But we are saved by a terrible thing happening to the only one good person. That's the miracle of Christmas. That the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of God. Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus who is the son of God and never stopped being the Son of God. Here's a fourth and final thing. The birth of Jesus is also a redemptive act or a redemptive event. Notice again what he says. He's quoting actually from Malachi 3.1, a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm not going to get into what this attaches itself to because really it's an announcement of the, pro the coming prophet that would precede the coming of the Messiah. But here's what stands out. Notice two things. He will cry from the wilderness. And it's the wilderness that helps us to understand what's taking place here. God didn't create a wilderness, here's what we see in Genesis 1, that God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without void, without form, and it was void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and then from that God said, let there be light, and let there be this, and he created, and what he did is he brought order. By very definition, a wilderness is a wasteland. It is a, desert, a deserted and desolate place. And sometimes we forget we live in a wilderness because we have nicer huts than we used to have and we forget, as War said, the world is a ghetto. My good friend Michael Horton helped me understand this in, in, in categorical ways. He said that Adam was in paradise. And sin. 
and it became a wilderness. And here is what the birth of Jesus is about. It is about redemption. It is redemption of the human life that took paradise and turned it into a wilderness. And it's the redemption of the wilderness that it will once again become paradise. One of the problems that I have with the song, I'll Fly Away, is that it acts as if we're not coming back. You see, in other words, the idea that's couched in that song is that I'm just going to leave this world behind and I'll fly away to the morning by and by and somewhere in the clouds and stuff. But no, here's what Paul actually says, that when Christ returns, those who are alive will meet him in the air. But what are we meeting him in the air for? To join his victory celebration on the earth. Because he's going to come to the earth and he's going to cleanse it of everything that defiles it. And so here's what I see that stands out is that, that he, it's the, the voice, our, our voice, the voice of John crying from the wilderness, yes, it is talking about prepare the way. Because here's what's taken place in the earth. The earth, the paradise has become a wilderness. And in that wilderness, that means it's under a curse. And so because it's under a curse, what Jesus has done, and, and so uh, uh, it's, uh, it's portrayed here as John the Baptist crying from the wilderness. And isn't that the case? Isn't that us crying from the wilderness? And God hears our cries, and God is the one who comes and restores the earth. And he does so by sending his son, the son of God. Jesus comes to redeem humanity, but he also comes to redeem creation. I like the way Paul expresses it in Romans 8. He says, the whole creation is groaning like a woman in labor, waiting for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. The birth of Jesus is redemptive. Because what it, what it redeems is it redeems us and he redeems the earth. When the Lord came the first time, he came to, us, to assure our, the redemption of our souls, the redemption of human life, which he does with his perfect life. But when he comes again, he will redeem the earth. And we will no longer think that our huts, no matter what side of the, what part of the city it's in, we will never, no longer think that our place is better than some other place. What he will do is that he will purge everything that defiles it and give it back to us. You know where you see this? You see it in the flood. In the flood, we are told that how wicked the times were at the time of Noah. And the Lord puts him in this great ark and, and then he builds on the ark for years. And then finally, when it's, when it's complete, the Lord brings the waters of destruction on the ark. So that those who are on the inside can be purged or can be kept safe from the wrath of God which was falling upon the ark. And then when they get out of the ark... There is no more sin 
or there's no more defilement on the earth. Brothers and sisters, that is typological. The birth of Jesus means that we have been redeemed because he becomes like our ark. The wrath of God fell upon him so that it would not come upon us. And when we are set free out of that ark, we will step on an earth that has been purged of everything that is vile and everything that is corrupt and corrupting. The birth of Jesus is a redemptive event where mankind and creation are redeemed for the glory that it was intended. Brothers and sisters, you notice the book ends of Genesis and Revelation. Before the fall, Genesis is a paradise. But in Revelation, after the fall, we have corruption and the world becomes a wilderness. And then the closing chapters of Revelation tells us that there will be the lion will lay down with the lamb and the heavens will and God will come down from the heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem will come down and we will be at one on the earth because God intended it that way. Now, I know we say, I'm just going to get away from here. No, we don't have to. And, and God is not going to burn up the earth and start all over. God is not a start over God. He will accomplish what he has attended. And the birth of Jesus is the guarantee that your soul, your body, and the earth itself will be redeemed for the eternal glory of God. Our God made a promise, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And what we celebrate is the good news that surrounds it and that is contained in it, and God's integrity in keeping his promise and the guarantee of our redemption. Amen.